from your car radio to your smart speaker. NPR meets you where you are in a lot of different ways. Now we're in your pocket. Download the NPR app today. Today we're bringing you a conversation we recorded on the road in Birmingham, Alabama last month. We were there on the 60th anniversary of the launch of the Birmingham campaign and brought national attention to the struggle for racial justice and what Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. called America's most segregated city. We can get a breakthrough in Birmingham and really break down the walls of segregation. It will demonstrate to the whole South, at least the hardcore South, that it can no longer resist integration. We travel to Alabama as part of our Remaking America collaboration with six partner stations across the country, including WBHM in Birmingham. Remaking America looks at how our democracy is or is not working for all of us. How far has Birmingham come since 1963? That's the year the 16th Street Baptist Church was bombed. Children took to the streets in protest, and Dr. King composed his famous letter from a Birmingham jail. Later, we hear from two people who participated in the Children's March on May 2nd of 1963. We also hear from Alabama's Poet Laureate, Birmingham native Ashley Jones. She's the youngest person and first person of color to hold the title. But first, we hear from Birmingham Mayor Randall Woodfin. This conversation was recorded at the historic Carver Theater in the heart of the city's Civil Rights District. I'm Jen White. You're listening to the 1A Podcast, where we get to the heart of the story. We'll be back with our conversation after this short break. Stay with us. Former President Trump is in serious legal trouble. And at the same time, he wants his old job back. It's a really big story, but with different trials in multiple states, with plea deals, testimony, gag orders, it's also really hard to follow. So we created Trump's Trials, a new NPR podcast where we break down the big news from each case and talk about what it means for democracy in weekly episodes. I'm Scott Detrow. Check out Trump's Trials from NPR. Climate change fuels hurricanes. China promises to stop. The big lie persists. Butterflies have hearts. Singers die. Plumbers win. Nurses persevere. Your world speaks. We listen. NPR podcasts. More voices, all ears. Find NPR wherever you get your podcasts. The news can feel incredibly overwhelming. For a breath of much-needed fresh air, head to NPR.org's culture section. From the buzzy movies, tiny desk, and artists that everyone seems to know about, type in NPR.org for the latest and greatest in the pop culture universe. We begin our conversation with the mayor of Birmingham, Randall Woodfin. He's a Democrat who was first elected in 2017. He was reelected in 2021. I started by asking Mayor Woodfin what it means to him to be mayor of the city in the spring of 2023, 60 years after the Birmingham campaign. There's a lot of weight on my shoulders, mm-hmm. if I'm honest. But I think there's a certain way you want and need to carry that weight on behalf of the citizens of Birmingham that I serve. When you consider 1963 and the 1960s and the movement and the resistance, the city of Birmingham was like a lot of other cities in the entire Southeast. What makes Birmingham different and stand out is that we reckon our differences on the world stage to see. And what the world saw was that there was a consistent resistance to change in the form of segregation. Um, But there was actual fighting for change as well. And that change eventually won out. Um, and there was a lot of a lot of tragic things that happened in that year. 
Um, but there are a lot of things to celebrate as well. And you cannot frame 1963 and the movement here, the Birmingham movement in, in 1963, without talking about, I would say, the most critical person of that movement, and that is um, Reverend Fred Shuttlesworth. Uh, but there was a villain in Birmingham by the name of Bull Connor. Um, and Reverend Fred Shuttlesworth um, invited King to Birmingham. And so I think that's important from a historical context to acknowledge. You mentioned the weight of being mayor of Birmingham in this in this moment. I just want you to pull on that thread a little bit. What does yeah, that mean? Here's what it means, everybody. Eugene Bull Connor was the public safety commissioner. That is the equivalent of being responsible for the police department, Birmingham Police Department, and Birmingham um, Fire and Rescue Department. These two departments, the way they were used and deployed, um, not just by wearing the, uni the blue uniform in the daytime and wearing their KKK sheets at night, but consider the images many of you all have in your head of Birmingham, which is it was Birmingham police dogs that were used on peaceful black protesters. It was Birmingham Fire and Rescue who used fire hoses on peaceful black protesters. Sixty years later, I am now responsible for that same police department. I am now responsible for that same fire department. And it's, I feel the responsibility of not only knowing our history, um, but in today's climate of social and racial, racial justice, what is the responsibility of a mayor or a public safety commissioner who is responsible for a police department in how they engage the public, um, and particularly black citizens we serve? We got this question from Chris, who says, Birmingham has made tremendous strides, but has a long way to go around neighborhood revitalization, crime and violence reduction and education. My question to Mayor Woodfin is, can you please tell me some of the initiatives you have in those areas? There's another frame I want to give everybody. The same Birmingham 60 years ago was a city made up of pretty much 99 neighborhoods as well. The difference then and now is we, have, we had two of everything. So 20th Street is an exit in the city of Birmingham. Uh, 20th Street, uh, Inslee. And on this exit, if you take the exit, uh, which is right off the interstate, everything on the right side um, was for black citizens and everything on the left side was for white citizens. Well, what does that mean? On the left side, you had Inslee High School, where black students could not attend. You had Inslee Park, where uh, black children could not play. You had Inslee Library, where black families could not learn or read or be educated. And so you had two in one. Well, today in Birmingham, Alabama, 60 years later, you still have two parks, two libraries, as well as two recreation centers. Um, but the question is, um, that area is all black now. That area has gone from 40,000 residents to 4,000 residents. And should two, should two still be in one footprint of one community? Or should we have one and it be more robust to serve that community? And so that's debatable because people don't like things to close. Um, related to revitalization, though, um, at the height of Birmingham's population, which was pretty much about six to eight years after 1963, the city of Birmingham had 340,000 residents. Um, today, the city of Birmingham has 200,000 residents. And so over that 
50-year period, we've lost um, 140,000 residents, which is a lot of citizens. And so our, neighbor, our neighborhood housing stock has changed. And so we've gone from having a home and families in each lot to spending a lot of time in our first um, term removing blight. And so on the neighborhood revitalization front, what we've done in the second term is spend millions towards going vertical with more single-family homes in the, in, the, in, in the form of a um, $10 million housing trust fund. Um, we've created a land bank um, thanks to the state of Alabama and our local legislators. I think on the crime front, it's a long answer. Um, one of the models we created is a hospital-based model that it tries to address the retaliation that exists not only in Birmingham, Alabama, related to gun violence, but across pretty much all urban cores in our nation. And so if a person is shot and survived, we have violence interrupters to meet this person, meet this victim, um, assault victim while they're in the hospital, engage them in resources and other ways to make sure when they come out, street justice or retaliation doesn't go back and forth. Um, another thing we've done is support a robust uh, conflict resolution program in our K-12 schools that's on the prevention end. That is a long-term play, but it's simple. Uh, we, conflict has always existed with mankind. Conflict will always exist. But we, what we want to teach is you don't have to pick up a gun um, to respond to any type of conflict you have with someone you know. While we've been here in Birmingham, we've had a chance to um, tour some some notable uh, spots, including the Gaston Motel. Prominent businessman A.G. Gaston created this space for black people to have a place to, to stay and convene. And, of course, that's where Reverends Shuttlesworth and, and King met and planned um, the campaign here in Birmingham. A.G. Gaston, was, he was a millionaire. <laughs> and today, just 4% of Birmingham's businesses are black-owned. That's according to a report from the Brookings Institute. The city's population is 70% black. What do you think accounts for that discrepancy? You mentioned two things earlier in some of your opening remarks. One was King's letter uh, from Birmingham jail. It was A.G. Gaston who bailed him out of jail. The Children's March and Crusade and all those children who were arrested. It was A.G. Gaston who bailed a lot of those children out of confinement. I like quiet heroes. I like men and women behind the scenes who, who are not out front, um, who don't necessarily use their voice, but they have all the action in the world. That was A.G. Gaston. Um, I think when you fast forward 60 years later, in that time span, I think of people who held my position in other cities. Uh, Maynard Jackson of the city of Atlanta. I think of uh, Mar Marion Barry of the city of D.C., and there was a time where mayors, through the power of their office, through local control, could empower and increase black wealth, not a handout, but by public services being provided. Think airports, uh, think construction, think other forms of services and contracts. It was state laws, state of Georgia, state of Alabama, and many other, again, southern cities that said, once America started having black mayors across the South, that they, they stopped and created a law that said certain things had to be a certain way um, 
for people to do business with cities. But when the South was full of only white mayors, that was not the case. Um, since a long time, at least since Birmingham 1871 being founded, there's been some intentionality either at the local level or state level um, to forbid people who have the same talent, provide the same service from receiving the same opportunity um, to get contracts. And I think there's a lot of different ways I can answer your question, but I wanted to answer it from a public service standpoint where there are models in cities like Detroit, D.C., and Atlanta. Black wealth grew um, in these cities uh, because of the intentionality and the power in the mayor's office. Randall Woodfin is the mayor of Birmingham, Alabama. He's a Democrat serving his second term. Mayor Woodfin, thank you for joining us. Thank you all. Coming up after the break, more of our conversation from Birmingham and from two people who participated in the Children's March for Civil Rights that helped change history. Stay with us. These days, it can feel like the news is fighting for your attention wherever you turn, but staying informed shouldn't be a battle. Everything you need to navigate the stories that matter to you is at your fingertips. The NPR app cuts through the noise, bringing you local, national, and global coverage. No paywalls, no profits, no nonsense. Download the NPR app in your app store today, or you can go to npr.org slash The day's top headlines, local stories from your community, your next podcast binge listen. You can have it all in one place, your pocket. Download the NPR app today. We continue our conversation with a poem from Alabama's poet laureate, Ashley Jones. It's titled, All Y'all Really from Alabama. It begins with a quote from Dr. King, and that quote reads, the straitjackets of race, prejudice, and discrimination do not wear only Southern labels. The subtle psychological technique of the North has approached in its ugliness and victimization of the Negro, the outright terror and open brutality of the South. And that's from Why We Can't Wait. This here, the cradle of this here nation, Everywhere you look, roots run right back south. Every vein filled with red dirt, blood, cotton. We the dirty words you spit out your mouth. Mason-Dixon is an imagined line. You can theorize it or wish it real, but it's the same old ghost, see-through, benign. All y'all from Alabama, we the wheel turning cotton to make the nation move. We the scapegoat in a land built from death. No longitude or latitude disproves the truth of founding father's sacred oath. We hold these truths like dark snuff in our jaw. Black oppression's not happenstance, it's law. At 32 years old, Ashley is the state's youngest poet laureate and the first person of color to hold the position. Ashley joined us at Birmingham's historic Carver Theater for a conversation about the fight for civil rights, past and present. 
Also with us were Janice Kelsey and Jeff Drew. They participated in the Children's March in 1963. Their actions brought national attention and momentum to the movement. Here's that story. Up in the morning and out to school. On May 2, 1963, hundreds of school-age kids in Birmingham, Alabama, woke up with a plan. Through coded messages broadcast by radio DJs, they were given the cue to leave the classroom and meet at the park for a peaceful protest. As I prepared to leave the house, my mother said, I'm sending you to school. Don't you go anywhere and get yourself in any trouble. I said, yes, ma'am. I was going to school. I just wasn't going to stay. You cannot imagine the joy of being on one of those buses on your way to jail. And people are singing and clapping their hands because as children, we were nearly dying to, do, to participate. We wanted to do our part. I have to say, our, our trip here to Birmingham has just been, it's been wonderful. Um, we've been greeted so warmly. Everyone wants to feed you. So thank you. Our team thanks you. Um, But it's also a place that that feels very alive and alive with history. Uh, Janice, as we said, we're approaching the the 60th anniversary of the Children's March in May. You were a high school student in Birmingham at the time. When did you first hear about plans for the Children's March? I was an 11th grader, and I had a girlfriend whose mother was involved with the civil rights movement, and she went to mass meetings with her mother, and on Tuesdays, she would come to school and talk about it. And that's how I heard about it, and that is what motivated me. Some things that she said motivated me to want to attend a mass meeting. I would imagine there were conversations in your household about your participation. Uh, eventually. <laughs> <laughs> How did those conversations with your parents go? Well, I did not discuss with my parents my plans or my thoughts about it. Uh, it was only afterwards that um, some of that took place uh, <laughs> after I was arrested. And um, <laughs> there were some deep conversations about what happened and, and why. Yeah. Take us back to the moment when you said, I need to be a part of this. What, what was, what was the, the thing that was said or, or that you heard or that you saw that sparked that desire in you to be a part of what you were seeing play out? I was aware of segregation. And in my, in my mind, it was just separation. And um, I didn't really have a problem with that. But I attended my first mass meeting at the urge of my friend. And in that mass meeting, I met a preacher named James Bevel. And James Bevel talked to the teenagers about some of the inequities that I was not really aware of. Um, He talked about the football teams and how my school got old equipment when Ramsey got new equipment. And hey, Ramsey was the white Ramsey the white was school. a white school, and it wasn't that far from my school. I went to Ullman, 
And I didn't think that was fair. He talked about the textbooks and the um, copyright dates. I'd never looked at the copyright dates in my book. I knew the textbooks were old because we used to wrap them in uh, brown paper bags and erase the dirty words out of the pages. But I'd never looked at the copyright dates. He said, he said, told us, your books are outdated. He talked about lots of examples. If you've ever bought a hot dog downtown, um, how much did you pay for it? About 27 cents. But you can't sit down and eat your hot dog. You have to go to the fourth floor and stand up and eat it. How much do you think the people on the first floor pay for their hot dog and coat? And I thought, maybe a dollar. He said, no, same thing you pay. But you can't sit and eat yours. Hearing all of that, he ended the conversation with, if you want to do something about it, you can. Your parents can't, because if they get involved, they may go to jail, lose their jobs, but you really don't have anything to lose because you're getting a second-class education. Hearing that is what pushed me forward to do something. I'm, I'm trying to imagine being a teenager. I mean, I think we, we all have these moments in our lives where the veil is lifted mm -hmm. and what seems normal is suddenly exposed as completely abnormal, wrong. How did you, how did you feel when suddenly you're, oh, wait a minute, all of, all of this, it shouldn't be this way? How did you feel? I've been deceived in so many ways, thinking that everything was okay when everything was totally out of sorts. Nobody in my home talked about inequities between the races. Uh, my parents always pushed, you're going to get a good education. You've got teachers who care. And those kind of messages are the ones that I had received. And going to this mass meeting and getting this new information, I discovered it wasn't just segregation. was not just separation. It was inequity. And I wanted a level playing field. And uh, I would do whatever was necessary to do that. Uh, Jeff, your parents were involved in the civil rights movement. What do you remember hearing about the Children's March, about what was happening around those plans? I remember the motivation that the, the Reverend Bevel gave us as children. And, and I just want to quickly mention um, James Bevel organized the Children's March. He was part of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. Exactly, exactly. And he was a young man as well. We knew that change, if we were collective and nonviolent, we knew that change was inevitable. It was going to be a difficult fight. But, but Reverend Bevel and, and, of course, Martin and all, Ralph and Andrew Young were all on the same page. Suddenly, the children, knowing that their parents and, and co-workers could not participate in the demonstration, we wanted to do our part to fill that gap and, and, and continue to, to, to put those huge numbers in the demonstrations and sub subsequently into jail. You cannot imagine the joy of being on one of those buses on your way to jail. And people are singing and clapping their hands because as children, 
we were nearly dying to, do, to participate. We wanted to do our part. And uh, Reverend Bevel made that happen for us, as well as Lucius Pitts out at Miles College, um, uh, and, and many, many school teachers in the Birmingham uh, district were, they turned their back uh, to write something on the blackboard, and when they turned back around, the classroom was empty. <laughs> People had jumped, jumped out of the window and over the fence. You have memories of Dr. King sleeping on your couch as a child. What are, what are your memories of him in Birmingham? Dr. King, whom I sometimes, he wanted me to call him Uncle Mike, but he was the most unselfish man I think I've ever met. He was determined to see past this generation and on to the next, just because we could not achieve all of what he wanted to see in his lifetime did not mean that the, that the, that the struggle was over. And it's important as a child, I felt and learned from him that this fight does not end. And that unless we talk about it, unless we engage about it and do something about it, then we're, we're, we're sitting on the bench. Ashley, as someone who grew up in Birmingham, when did you learn this history? How did you learn it? Um, growing up here and learning about the history from such a young age, it becomes kind of like second nature. You just know, oh, I'm in Birmingham, these things happened. But it, be kind of, it kind of became real for me in my early 20s, um, going to visit 16th Street Baptist Church for the first time and actually going in. I had always seen the church, but walking into the church and getting a tour and learning, standing where it all happened, something changed in me because I realized it could easily have been me. It could still be me today, honestly. Um, and once I started to think about this history as living. I think too often when we look at our past, we think of it as something just dead in the past. It happened, it's over. But those were, these are real people right here. They're alive right here, you know. Um, and the history is that way. It's full of living people and we are living people too. These things can happen to us. And once I started to think of it that way um, and, you know, I got older, did some more research, I started writing um, poems about Birmingham and now, you know, I travel across the country reading poems and teaching people and educating people about this history. People don't always know it, which is sad. Well, well, well I want it because I'm, I'm thinking about you mm -hmm. as an educator. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we, we toured the Gaston Motel. We toured the 16th Street uh, Baptist Church. And as I was walking through and just making note of the dates... And it was the first time I thought about it. I said, oh, wait, my oldest siblings, I'm one of seven and I'm the sixth, but my oldest siblings were born before the laws that truly granted them full citizenship in this country, before those laws existed. Not my great-grandparents, not my grandparents, not my parents even, my siblings. As an educator, what are you thinking about this moment we're in when there is this debate over what history is taught, how it's taught, and the treatment of this history, this living history, as being something that's not relevant or important anymore? <laughs> it's very frustrating, to say the absolute least. Um, it's all intentional. If anyone out there thinks that 
people have good intentions when they want to protect people from the history, they don't. I mean, there's a specific reason they don't want the history to be learned, many reasons. Um, and I think it's really doing all of us a disservice to try to avoid what happened, what is happening now. Um, I think there are maybe some people in the country who'd like to return to the way things were, or um, I don't know, try to paint the past as something that it wasn't. Um, so I think it's really important to teach anyone, not just our children, but everybody, the truth. Um, you're only hurting yourself if you make up a story about what happened. And if you want to avoid what maybe your ancestors did, I mean, I don't know how that's helping you, you know. Yes, it is painful, it's uncomfortable, but it's uncomfortable for everybody. You know, I was just five years old when I first experienced racism, five years old. And there's people younger than me, I'm sure, who have, you know, experienced hurtful things. If I have to go through that at five, then you, at whatever age you are, can deal with what happened. Even if what happened was done by your family, we have to deal with it or else it will continue to happen. Let's get back to some of that history. Uh, Janice, on May 2nd, 1963, that was known as D-Day, for the Children's March. What was the plan for D-Day? I would love for you to just walk us through what you did that day, especially since your parents didn't know what you were planning on doing. <laughs> well, I got up with my mind on freedom. This song was in my heart. Uh, I knew what the plan was to uh, come to school. Uh, I tried to make it as normal as possible, but I remember getting up and having my shower and packing my purse with the soap and toothbrush and change of underwear, everything that I would need for an overnight stay. And um, the radio was on, tall Paul White and Shelly the Playboy were talking in coded language that I fully understood. Uh, uh, Shelly would say, it's going to be a party in the park. I knew what he was talking about, Kelly Ingram Park. Tall Paul would say something, we're going to jump and shout, we're going to turn it out. I knew what he was talking about. We're going to school, but we're going to leave. And uh, as I prepared to leave the house, my mother said, I, I, I'm sending you to school. Don't you go anywhere and get yourself in any trouble. I said, yes, ma'am. I was going to school. I just wasn't going to stay. So <laughs> that was the plan. <laughs> So we walked to school and joined uh, with other friends, and we started singing freedom songs. Ain't going to let nobody turn me around, and before I'll be a slave, I'll be buried in my grave. And, of course, we were singing, We Shall Overcome, and we were just excited about what was to take place. And we got to school. First period teacher was kind of young and I thought approachable, and I asked her, What's going to happen if some kids walk out of your class? And she said, well, if everybody walks, there's nobody to fail. And to me, that meant they aren't going to do anything to us. So <laughs> that gave me the courage to uh, leave. Well, I stayed until the bell rang. And when the bell rang, people were walking down the hall saying, it's time, it's time. And we walked out that front door, and it's, <laughs> Jeff said some people climbed, climbed out of windows, and uh, everybody was headed to 16th Street. We get down downtown 16th Street, kids everywhere, cops everywhere, and um, Bevel and Andrew Young stood at the top of the steps at 16th Street and said, if you're here for the march, come into the church. We went into the church. 
We sang some more freedom songs, and we were rocking and clapping and excited. They said some prayers. They lined us up, and we started marching. Coming up, we'll hear what happened to those hundreds of students marching for freedom in Birmingham on May 2, 1963, including Janice Kelsey and Jeff Drew. More from our conversation from Birmingham after the break. NPR brings you the updates you need on the day's biggest headlines. The Senate narrowly passed the debt ceiling bill that will prevent the country from defaulting on its loans. Stories from across the world. Knowing how to forage and to live with the land is integral to Amis culture. And down your block. From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. And you can find all of that and more in your pocket. Download the NPR app today. The world of podcasts can feel overwhelming. We'll let you in on the easiest way to find your next favorite show. Head to npr.org slash podcast. From politics to pop culture to music and everything in between, you'll find a selection of shows that'll make you a super fan in no time. The NPR app cuts through the noise, bringing you local, national, and global coverage. No paywalls, no profits, no nonsense. Download it in your app store today. Let's get back to our conversation we recently recorded in Birmingham, Alabama, 60 years after the Birmingham Campaign for Civil Rights. On May 2, 1963, James Drew and Janice Kelsey joined hundreds of kids around Birmingham, marching to bring attention to the injustices of segregation. They walked out of school and went to the 16th Street Baptist Church, where they gathered and sang songs. Then they started marching. And here's Janice Kelsey with what happened next. Police officers stopped us, told us we were in violation of a city ordinance. We could not parade without a permit. Uh, the police who was speaking said, get out of the line, that's going to happen. Stay in the line, you're going to jail. Well, that's why I got in the line to go to jail. <laughs> but I was very much intimidated looking at him. A, he was a white man, and I was not accustomed to disobeying adults, period. But this was a white man. He had a gun on his hip and a stick in his hand. But somebody started singing, we are not afraid. And that gave me the courage to remain in that line and to be arrested. Uh, so I spent my first day, May 2nd, first at juvenile court. And so many people were arrested as the day wore on. They transferred us to county jail. County jail was real jail. Mug shots, fingerprints, jail cell locked up, and we sat around on the concrete floors. The next day was double D-Day, more people were arrested. They sent school buses to get us from county jail, transferred us to Fair Park. Fair Park had an amusement park in the front of it called Kitty Land Park. I'd never been in there, but I passed by it many times. The Ferris wheel, the carousels, you could smell the popcorn, but blacks were not allowed to go in. And when the buses turned into Kitty Land Park, we went crazy. We cheered. <laughs> they didn't let us ride nothing, though. <laughs> we went to the back of the, back of the park into what was uh, 4-H dormitory. And uh, I was happy to be there. 
uh, I, there were rumors floating around about what was happening to the kids who were in jail. One of the things that I, I was aware of, I heard that the uh, officers who were in charge of us out there at Fair Park would call the name of a girl in the middle of the night, and she'd have to get up, and they would discharge her, just let her go without having an opportunity to call anybody. And, uh, of course, I found later that my parents had heard the same kinds of rumors, and they were so worried as to what was going on and where was I and all that. But they did come to Fair Park on that Sunday afternoon uh, and got me out. The Children's March was controversial within civil rights leadership at the time. In late April, the movement was losing momentum as more African Americans were arrested and jailed in Birmingham during peaceful protests. James Bevel and Ike Reynolds, who were part of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, mentioned recruiting about 150 school-age volunteers who had participated in the campaign and were eager to be involved in demonstrations. King expressed some reluctance around involving kids in the movement because he feared police violence against them. Jeff, what do you remember about the police response to those who marched? As the mayor mentioned earlier, the, a lot of the policemen that were also clans, Klansmen, they would have their robes on the back deck of their car. Uh, there was a, 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 extreme intimidation between the police department and those of us that were participating in the movement. Yet Martin, in his eloquent manner, was able to keep us calm and nonviolent. As a child, I would, in the mass meetings before we would march the next day, he, I was about maybe 10 years old, we would go up and down the aisles of the churches with shoeboxes and collect any weapons that the would-be marchers might have. Martin would tell the audience, if you can't be nonviolent, it, I understand. Just don't come. Because he knew that all it would take was one tiny act of violence, and the police would have killed us all with pleasure. I'm just trying to imagine, though, you as a little boy. Mm. Because there's, there is the idea of participation it hurts. And then there's the moment when you're actually faced with someone willing to do you harm. It takes a strong constitution to, to take that kind of intimidation, to see people spitting up and on you. And, and, and to, to the Klan called my father up and said, we're going to bomb your house tonight. And my dad had the courage to say, well, why do you wait to... To tonight, why don't you just come now? Hmm. Uh, 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 people spitting on, on my mother. Um, but, I mean, we're talking about dogs and hoses on children. As a young person, how do you process what you're seeing? The moment in time was hate was popular. It was popular. It was the way of Birmingham. It was the way of Dixie. And we were trying to break that popular mode to say that everybody is important. Every single human being is important. Uh, we toured the 16th Street Baptist Church um, during our time here, as I said. And on September 15th, 1963, 
white supremacist bombed that church during Sunday school. Addie Mae Collins, Cynthia Wesley, and Carol Robertson, all 14 years old, and 11-year-old Carol Denise McNair were killed. Janice, those four girls were around your age in yes. 1963. How, how did that experience shape you? I was devastated. Um, Denise McNair's father, Chris McNair, was our milkman. So I knew her family. Carol Robinson's father was my band teacher in eighth grade. And her mother taught at the same school that my sister taught. So I knew Carol's family. And Cynthia Wesley, people thought was my sibling. I was the fifth Wesley sibling to go to Oldman. And when Cynthia came that fall, last name Wesley, everybody thought she was one of us. I met her when we were in elementary school when she was adopted by Gertrude and Claude Wesley. And they invited me to their home and I, I acted like Cynthia was my kid sister because I had seven brothers and the older sister, so I was a big sister. When I heard that Sunday evening that she was among those who was killed, I thought they got the wrong one. She did not leave school. She did not participate in the demonstrations. And I thought they got the wrong Wesley girl. I didn't talk about it. I was just in so much pain in what happened. I thought people were proud of us. I didn't know we had angered somebody to the extent that they would kill somebody for what we had done. And it took me a lot of years before I could talk about it because it still hurts. And then to add insult to injury, it took so long before anybody was brought to justice. And so it was like everybody was okay with what happened, and I was not okay. I thought if, if I don't say some things, people won't know because it's not in textbooks, and the girls can't speak for themselves, and maybe that's why I was saved, so I could speak about it. And... If you don't know your history, you're likely to repeat it. Yeah. So that's why I talk about it now. Ashley, as I'm listening to these stories, again, as an educator, what stories get overlooked when we talk about civil rights history, both from the perspective of the individuals whose stories get lost in history, but also those, those nuances and those layers about what it costs. What do, we, what do we overlook? What stories are we missing? As a kid, you know, we learn the stories and we don't necessarily break down that these are human beings who sacrifice so much. Um, you know, we don't have the story you just told. We don't have your stories about Dr. King sleeping on your couch. Like, that is not in the textbook. So as teachers, it, 
does become hard to relay all the information. And so I think we do miss the opportunity, especially here in Birmingham, to engage people who are still living who can talk to the young people and not just give the history, but connect the fact that they are human beings who existed then and and were young at the time that these things happened. I can't imagine, I literally can't imagine what it means as a child to decide to go march. And I thank y'all, I thank you so much for doing that so that we could be here today. There's a woman I know who substitutes at uh, my school. I teach at the Alabama School of Fine Arts. Um, her name is Nettie Weddington, and I know she wouldn't want me to say her name, but um, um, but she uh, also marched during the Children's March, and she's told her story to my students before. And meeting her was another one of those moments, like when I shared earlier, walking into the 16th Street Church. Meeting her really put into perspective what it took for me to be able to stand in a classroom and teach students of all races and to be vocally political as a public school teacher and now to be the first black poet laureate and be political at the same time and not be afraid that I'm going to be fired or hurt in some way. That's because of the work that all of these people did, the sacrifice that they, um, that they have endured. And I can't imagine you know, having to live with some of the memories of what happened. I've never been hosed down. I've never been jailed. You know, I haven't experienced these things before. <sighs> it just leaves you kind of speechless, you know, and I do my best, you know, in my work. That's my activism, um, poetry, and education. Um, that's where I put my life on the line because, I mean, no, I'm not in the streets, but traveling all across the country alone, and I don't know who's in the audience. I don't know who's waiting for me anywhere, ever. That's my contribution, um, and I do tell students, and anybody who will listen, there's something everyone can do. Ashley, what occurs to me in these conversations is that, you know, we treat history as being something separate, but it's actually deeply personal. Mm. You know, I think about my family's history and why I get to sit here. Um, how has your family's history, Ashley, informed your work? Um, my dad, whose name was Chief Donald Lewis Jones, um, he was um, an assistant chief for Birmingham Fire and Rescue, and he was the first black chief of midfield fire before he passed away. Um, and I think about, you know, in 1963, there wasn't anybody like him serving in the fire department. And I grew up only knowing, you know, my dad, a black man, a very, you know, strong-willed and um, proud black man serving in that way. That's incredible. You know, that's, that's progress I can't deny. It made me realize that, you know, all of us can step into those roles. We can um, kind of take back those things that were taken away from us. Um, I didn't aspire to be the first black anything, to be honest with you. I thought it would be all over by the time I was an adult, you know. Surprise. Naive little yeah. Ashley, yeah. <laughs> you know. Um, but now that that's the reality that I'm living in, it's really an honor for me to break that door down, and it's my responsibility now to make sure the door is totally gone. We have just a, a couple of minutes left, and, and Janice and Jeff, I just would love for you each to talk to young people who are hearing this conversation. What would you say to this younger generation because I hear from so many of them so often that they don't feel like this country is living up to its promise even now. 
What would you say to them, Jeff? Remain optimistic. If we can overcome hatred and racism in Birmingham, Alabama, we can set an example for the rest of the world. I asked Dr. King about these statues, and he says he doesn't care anything about a statue. He wants to change the hearts of men. And that's what has to happen. And you don't have to be ashamed to do that. It can be... We all have a conscience. We don't have to have a a charismatic leader anymore. We all have our own mental conscience, and we can engage one another without fear. Go ahead and come to you, Janice. What would you say to to the younger generation? I want you to recognize the sacrifices that were made in order for you to enjoy the liberties that you do today. It came with a price. And if you can understand that, certainly you would be motivated to want to do your part. And your part does not necessarily mean that you are in charge of a movement. But if you understand the movement, you can see where you fit in to make it happen. And all of us have a responsibility to do that. And once you acquaint yourself with what has happened, and where you'd like to see us go, get in line and help us to get there. We spoke with Janice Kelsey and Jeff Drew in Birmingham last month. As students, they participated in the campaign for civil rights there in 1963. Ashley Jones is Alabama's Poet Laureate. She also joined us for our conversation in Birmingham. And thanks to WBHM for hosting us. WBHM is one of six public radio stations we've partnered with for our Remaking America collaboration. Remaking America is funded in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. This conversation was produced by 1A's Anna Casey. 1A's Amanda Williams leads our Remaking America collaboration. And thanks to WBHM's Daryl McCalla and John Malone for sound engineering. 1A comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Jen White. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk more soon. Instead of scrolling mindlessly, engage mindfully with the NPR app. With a mix of on-demand news, stories from this station, and your favorite podcast, you can relax without shutting off your brain. Download the NPR app today. What's happening on NPR Podcasts? More neighborhoods and more perspectives. The more of the world that you hear, the more you hear the world as it really is. NPR Podcasts. More voices. All ears. Find NPR wherever you get your podcasts. News is a public service. That's why NPR never puts a paywall in front of our journalism. NPR.org, our free website, promises to stay that way so that you get all of it. Breaking news, pop culture, award-winning journalism, wherever you are. To stay connected, head to NPR.org. NPR.org.